Buffett's latest wisdom is out. This is Industry Focus. Hi, everyone. Christine Harge is here along with our senior banking specialist, John Maxfield. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Christine. Awesome. Did you have a good weekend? I did. It was great. I don't know if it's still... I'm, I'm out in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if it's still cold on the East Coast like it was for you guys, but it's just been beautiful out here in the high 50s and low 60s. Um, so you can't get much better than that for, for late February, early March. Well, I can I can say I'm definitely pretty jealous of that. It was certainly chilly here in Alexandria. But I bundled up, stayed in, and dove right in on the latest letter to shareholders for Berkshire Hathaway. Read up on uh, the Oracle of Omaha's wisdom. I'm sure you did as well. I did. I, I spent many an hour uh, this weekend sending off. I have twin toddlers sending them off so I could, so I could delve into, into Buffett's latest letter, which is his one of our colleagues wrote something saying that it was the best ever. I, I couldn't agree more with it. Yeah, definitely worth a read, if not several reads. Um, let's dig into it a little bit more. So, I mean, first off, like, what, what is the big deal with this letter? Well, the big deal with this letter is that it commemorates the 50th anniversary since Buffett acquired control of Berkshire Hathaway, which when you think back to the very beginning, Berkshire Hathaway was just a very small collection of textile mills based on the East Coast, and now it's turned into this just massive conglomerate. So what's so interesting about this letter is that, first and foremost, you know, it kind of caps that natural milestone. And secondarily, because it caps that natural milestone, both Buffett and his vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, sat down and wrote special addendums to the letter covering the next 50 years, and in Berkshire's case, and in Buffett's case, um, and in, in Munger's case, uh, kind of how Berkshire got to where it is today. And they were absolutely fascinating reads, I have to say. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know what's so amazing about, so first of all, I, let me just you know, put this out there. I'm not a, a, like a fanboy, per se, of Warren Buffett, but I am an enormous intellectual admirer of him. And one of the things that is great about his letter, and if you've ever read any of Munger's letters in the past, is that you can tell these guys are both exquisitely good uh, writers and voracious readers. And those two things come together in a shareholder letter like this to really um, be able to uh, successfully teach a variety of different lessons to the people who read them. Absolutely. And they are so readable for being so intellectually rich. They're broken down, they're organized, and they're packed with these analogies that make it something that every person could read and and gain some really solid, truthful, but understandable wisdom. Yeah. I mean, in, in my opinion, this is one of the most important, just the shareholder letters of Berkshire Hathaway as they continue on, particularly while Buffett is still there. It's probably, if not the single most important living document that is still being uh, collated, certainly among a, a handful of them um, that are out there right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, and so one thing that was kind of interesting for me to note in these was 
the fact that they included both both a past looking perspective as well as the forward looking perspective. And I mean, what, what's your opinion? Which one of those two do you think was was more interesting for you to read? Well, that's a great. That's a really good question. Um, I would say that they're they're both really interesting for different reasons. So if you look at Buffett's addendum to the letter, he talks about kind of the next 50 years at Berkshire Hathaway. What I found that was so interesting about that is how he started the letter, just talking about what a safe and secure investment Berkshire is. And we can go through that, kind of the specific reasons that he gave later. But, you know, just that thought process that this is kind of like the rock of Gibraltar in terms of, in terms of companies, um, I thought was is a very good point to start out with and kind of just to lay into its shareholder in, into the Berkshire shareholders' heads, um, you know, as potential that Buffett will either, you know, at some point step down from the role of Berkshire Hathaway. But then you had Munger's part that looked back on, you know, why Berkshire Hathaway was able to become just so extraordinary, so extraordinarily successful. And for somebody with his insight, given that he was the vice chairman and, if not Buffett's best friend, certainly among his best friends, his vantage point on that and the way that he so comprehensively goes through what he believes led to Berkshire's success, um, I found, and I suspect you did too, to be incredibly um, insightful. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. And you know what also stands out to me there is that he was able to consolidate it into four distinct factors. Yes. Yeah. He was able to, yeah, four, and then kind of kind of a, a fifth one talking about, because then he talked about kind of that next 50 years too, and that was in that that fifth one. But what I liked about it is that it's really clear that the man that wrote that letter, i.e. Charlie Munger, is a lawyer because he goes through things in such a systematic, well-organized, and thorough way. It's almost more like an outline as opposed to a narrative where every word in, in Charlie Munger's letter means something as opposed to, you know, you look at letters from other CEOs there's a lot of fluff, a lot of unnecessary words that are in there just to create that narrative. Yeah, I mean, his is short, sweet, to the point. That's a really good observation. Um, something that you mentioned in there that I think we'd be remiss not to discuss a little bit is, um, so you, I mean, you mentioned CEOs, and earlier you talked a little bit about uh, the, the succession. So, I mean, we even had a, an industry focus episode on this a couple of weeks ago about how important the succession of CEOs is at, at banks was our initial discussion. But, you know, we, we did talk a little bit about how this is something that's really important for companies across all sectors. Um, is, is getting that leadership transition right. And of course, that has been a huge theme of media coverage of this particular letter and even just a lot of buzz in general for a while now. Because Buffett, it, he's getting up there, you know, and so you, we need to start thinking about these things. And people have been certainly thinking about them, if not overthinking about them. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, you know, to your point, this is an incredibly important thing. And being, you know, focused on banks in particular, one of the commonalities that I have seen at the best-run banks in the United States over multiple decades through multiple credit cycles is a continuity of leadership. And that doesn't necessarily mean 
the same exact person over this whole time, but where you have a transition from one leader to another, it's it's both a pleasant transition, and it's one in, in that is done in a way that the underlying culture of a corporation can stay consistent irrespective of who is at the top. And so when you look at Berkshire Hathaway, this is as important as it is at a bank, if not more so for this reason. When you think about how Berkshire is organized, its, its, it's corporation, you have a tiny central office based in Omaha, Nebraska, that has all of 25 employees. Meanwhile, it has these massive conglomerates, or these not, not massive conglomerates, massive subsidiaries in a variety of different businesses. They own multiple insurance companies that in multiple areas of insurance, reinsurance, casualty insurance, et cetera, et cetera. They own a huge railroad, right, BNSF. They own energy companies. They own all of these different things. And the, the CEO at the top of Berkshire, i.e. Buffett, is responsible for kind of like keeping all this together, but also not interfering with how each of those underlying subsidiaries is run because a big part of Berkshire's model is extreme decentralization uh, to where, you know, the CEOs of subsidiaries can make the decisions on their own. So that next CEO at Berkshire is not only going to have to be able to step in and do the, you know, the amazing job at allocating capital that Buffett has done, which is incredible, but they're also going to have to be able to step back and allow that extreme delegation model to play to play a role. And that just isn't, you know, when you look at a lot of, you know, imperial CEOs throughout large companies in the United States, that just isn't their style. So for Buffett and, and Munger, it was incredibly important that that next CEO come from within. So it's somebody who really grasps that aspect of Berkshire Hathaway. Absolutely. And uh, one statement along these lines that I found really interesting in this letter was Buffett's claim that, in, and I'm just going to read the sentence straight from the letter, in certain important respects, this person, meaning the, the CEO that will succeed him, will do a better job than I am doing. What do you think he meant by that? So it's, you know, I, I, I only wish I knew exactly what he meant. It is my guess that what he is referring to is the fact that Buffett himself is not so much of an operating manager. He's much more, you know, that's why this extreme delegation is such an important part of Berkshire Hathaway. It's basically a huge investment fund that its assets consist of, as a, in addition to a large securities portfolio, you know, massive subsidiaries. So it's my guess that when you look at the two people that he, you know, pointed out as potential successors, they are both. They both run businesses um, within the Berkshire family. So I would, you know, again, I, I would, I would hazard a guess what, what he is referring to. And Munger kind of makes the same insinuation in his addendum is that these guys have a lot of experience actually running business lines, as opposed to essentially dealing with capital allocation and handing off the, the authority to. Uh, to run everything to to subsidiary CEOs. Right. And I think another thing to add on to that is both of these of these letters 
reference the fact that there are so many systems in place at Berkshire to caution against any sort of destructive potential for maybe having a, a CEO that didn't live up to expectations, that even given all this hype and, and certainly the true fact that there is importance about who the next CEO is, this business is not in danger. Um, for example, I mean, one of the, the mechanisms that was brought up in the letter was uh, uh, Buffett's plan for his son uh, to end up being a non-executive chairman after Buffett. So the son is not going to be the CEO, but he's going to be the chairman. And uh, this, this is a very interesting setup. I would, would you agree? It, it, it certainly is. Um, and basically the role that Howard Buffett will play, you know, according to Warren Buffett, is that he will be the keeper of the culture. And, and I found this interesting because, uh, to relate it back to banks, that is basically the same thing that John Stump, who's the CEO of Wells Fargo, said about his role at Wells Fargo. Because one of the things that we know about banking and, in large part, insurance, and, of course, investing in a, you know, investing in a securities portfolio, is that you've got to maintain an incredible level of discipline through various cycles, credit cycles, insurance cycles, and all those various things. And that ability to that ability is a cultural ability. So in order for a company like Berkshire to do well, you've got to have somebody who's kind of responsible for that. And until now, it's been, you know, Warren Buffett himself. But later on down the road, you know, he's trying to um, layer in some additional protections for the culture specifically by putting his son, Howard Buffett, uh, in the non-executive chairmanship. And I think that that's a pretty smart idea, in my own opinion. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Let me say one other thing that, you know, this strikes me every year that I read Buffett's letters, and I've gone back in history and read all of them. And it is the fact that when you look at a company like Berkshire Hathaway, and you compare it to and how it's run, and you compare it to all of these other major corporations, what you see is that it is, it is indeed possible to run a, an extremely shareholder-friendly company that is also extraordinarily successful. One of the things that we run into nowadays is that these CEOs and these board members at these companies just get paid so much money to do what they're doing that it's almost like that notion of a fiduciary duty to where they have to put their shareholders' interests above their own has completely gone by the wayside. But a Berkshire Hathaway, it most certainly hasn't. And on top of that, Berkshire Hathaway's wealth, Hathaway's wealth has been built on investing in companies that act in the same way. So it's just, you know, kind of a reminder that shareholders, you know, despite all the noise out there, really should try to focus not on settling for a second-rate or third-rate company when they're making investment decisions. Absolutely. And that's something that Buffett touches on a little bit towards the very end of his letter, talking about Berkshire shareholders and how unique they are. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the issue that he brought up from last year's annual meeting, the proxy resolution? Sure. So last year, I... I some shareholder who evidently didn't 
in the meeting submitted uh, a, for proxy vote um, that you know he would like Berkshire to pay a dividend because not everybody is a billionaire. You know, not all the shareholders of Berkshire are billionaires, like Warren Buffett, but like Warren Buffett was. And I can't remember off the top of my head the exact percentages, but the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway, and this was in, in Berkshire's corporate board did nothing to lobby on behalf of not issuing a, a dividend or anything like that. But the shareholders voted something like, I, and maybe you have the numbers right in front of you, something like 98% or 94% uh, against uh, forcing the Berkshire board to pay a dividend. And what that shows is just uh, a, a considerable amount of trust and respect in and for the decisions that Buffett makes on behalf of shareholders with those retained earnings that then he then uses and allocates. allocates. Basically, shareholders are telling Buffett, like, look, we would rather you keep our money than we keep it. And that, that's, that's a big compliment uh, to a CEO. But, of course, you know, <laughs> Warren Buffett is probably, you know, the best investor. Um, I mean, perhaps the best investor of all time uh, anywhere. Right. And that is just an incredible vote of, of confidence in him. And yeah, I mean, the, the number that you threw out there, 98%, that's spot on. Um, with the A shares, the the vote was a decided no on the, the dividend um, margin of 89 to 1, I've got. And then the, the B shareholders were 47 to 1. So simply overwhelming majority there. And I think that's a, a really incredible thing that shows how much confidence people have in the philosophy of Berkshire and in Buffett himself and all the systems that he has set up there. Yeah, and, and along the same lines as a dividend, because what you're talking about with a dividend, you're talking about a capital allocation decision. And when you, one of our CEOs, um, Tom Garner's favorite books is a book called The Outsiders, and it talks about these eight different CEOs who are, among other things, extremely good at profitably allocating capital. And you can do that in a number of different ways. But the two primary ways, once that, that capital has come in, you can either, if you're going to return it to shareholders, or I guess there's three ways. You can retain it and then reinvest in the, in the business. You can distribute it via dividends, or you can buy back stock. And one of the things that we've seen with Berkshire, and this is one of the reasons it's, it's been able to compound at such an incredible rate over the years, over the decades, is that it has not, number one, distributed the money to its shareholders. And number two, when in those few instances in which it has bought back its shares, it has only done so at a measure that Buffett perceives it to be below the intrinsic book value. But you look around at corporations today, and companies, just as a matter, like as a matter of you know their regular course of operations, buy back billions of dollars of their own shares of common stock, irrespective of price. And if you pay too much, you know, for your common stock, you are destroying value. I think it's something like if you pay more than one plus your return on equity, you are by definition destroying value. And that is kind of the standard operating procedure at I don't know maybe <laughs> nine out of ten companies. S&P 500 today, but Berkshire Hathaway is not one of those. Right, yeah, and Buffett does talk a lot about that strategy going forward and whether that will continue to be the case. And it, it seems like it, he does kind of hint that it's possible that 
a dividend could be in the future if it makes sense. But he's not trying to say, yes, this is definitely coming our way. The the tides have changed. Um, he basically just lays out that the the management's decisions will be the right ones. He's so confident in that. And whether that is buying back shares at well below intrinsic business value or if it might be the time to distribute these these excess earnings as a dividend. Um, and, and one interesting point there is that this change could happen simply because of the implications of Berkshire's size. I mean, that's going forward what's going to make the next 50 years so different from the previous 50. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, at this point, I don't know what Berkshire's market cap is, but it's many hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, even if it increased in size by $5 billion a year or what would otherwise be an enormous amount on a percentage basis just because Berkshire has gotten so big, to your point, it's going to be much smaller. So, And the larger that a company gets, you know, just by definition, the fewer great um, uses of that available, you know, of those retained earnings are you're going to be able to find. So, you know, what Buffett is saying is that, look, there will come a point where we have too much cash that we can profitably employ at a rate of return that we think um, uh, justifies keeping the money as, as opposed to returning it to shareholders um, in some way, shape, or form. Now, I would say that he did place that, at least it seemed to me, he placed that time frame probably outside of the point at which he will be managing the company anymore. I think, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I think he said it like 10 or 20 years out in the future, which would put him in the mid to late 90s, which I hope he's still running Berkshire, um, but certainly I, I would think that the odds are against that. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, I'm just going to ask you if there's any other uh, points that we can take out of these letters and, and really highlight. I mean, what's, what's another big thing in here that we would, we'd be remiss not to talk about? Well, I mean, there's probably, I, I, I mean, it, there's just a menu of, of, of incredible insights. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we, we could talk for 20 minutes about any of these sentences in here alone. Yeah, but you know the one thing that that I you know to any serious investors or anybody who's interested in Warren Buffett is listening to this. The one thing that I would say is that look, reading what Buffett writes in his shareholder letters, which are all available on Berkshire's website, is probably the single best education, and it's free that you can give yourself when it comes to investing. By the time you know, these letters are broken down and, and, and talked about and written about and analyzed um, by analysts and commentators. It's kind of like the game of telephone, where the actual message that Buffett is trying to get across and the context in which he's talking about it are, are diluted. So any investor that is interested in both protecting the money that he, is, he or she has made and growing it over the long term probably... The most valuable way to spend that time is just to sit down and just maybe once a week, once a month, whatever it is, to slowly churn through Buffett's letters because it will just teach you the importance of discipline and the importance 
when you are investing your hard-earned money, the importance of not settling with people you wouldn't trust to, let's say, house it over the weekend while you're on vacation. That's awesome advice, and I, I love the telephone analogy in there. That was very Buffett-like. Um, all right, well, thank you so much for all of the great insights today, and we will see you next week. Uh, for now, this is Christine Hargis, and have a great week, everyone. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.